Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The NFL Conference Championships are here, and on the site, Robert Mays is writing about why this year's Chiefs are the team that Andy Reid has been waiting for, and Kevin Clark breaks down the era of the old dominant quarterback. Also, don't forget to check out all of our sports video coverage. We've got Master Sports with Roger Sherman, Slow News Day with Kevin Clark, and NBA Desktop with Jason Concepcion. You can check it all out on YouTube and TheRinger.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line in a Mysterio cloud, it's Andy Greenwald! You know, last time we talked, Chris, I had the Mysterio cloud inside of my chest cavity <laughs> and now... I got to tell you, this is an upgrade. This is much better. We're we're far away yet so close. We don't have you in the studio, but it's so glad. It's so great to have you back on the watch, Andy. Welcome. It th- thanks to you and to all the talented people for holding it down without me. You know, I listen to every minute of all the episodes I miss, <laughs> and I just love the banter, the cultural conversation. It's just what I sign up for. You know, it's great. Thank Speaking you. of cultural conversation, you want a, you want a little anecdote? for me today always so today very rainy in los angeles oh by the way today we're going to talk about uh the spider-man trailer the ghostbusters news true detective season three andy's impressions and then juliette Littman's going to join me to talk about high flying bird the new steven soderbergh movie that's coming out on netflix in a couple weeks that we're very excited about today i was driving to work and it's it's been raining and one of the things that's been happening during this rainstorm is it happens to coincide with a teacher strike in los angeles and you, you've seen like teachers on strike, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. on, like on sidewalks uh, protesting, and it's like I, I personally support them. Uh, so I was driving by, and I had bought donuts for our office. First of all, what a nice guy! What a low key humble brag. So I buy these donuts. Wait, though, <laughs> I buy the donuts, and I drive by, and all these teachers are on the sidewalk in the rain. It's like honk if you support us. I'm honking, and I'm like, I got to do more than honk. I got to give them these donuts now. Whoa. Emotionally, I'm sort of regifting them, but like, let's move past that and look at it as the charity that it is, that like the the benevolent thing that it is. So I'm, I pull my car over, and I go up with the donuts, and as I'm walking up there, I get a whiff of those maple logs and those coconut cream donuts, and I'm just like, <laughs> kind of having second thoughts. Like I'm like, I definitely support the teachers, but the, you know, is it is it almost wrong for me to be giving them this thing that wasn't initially meant for them, right? And then as I like roll up and I'm like, you guys, so into what you're doing here. Here's some donuts. I They're like, great. Just put them over there. And I'm not the only person who had this idea today. There was like all this coffee and donuts and, and wow. pastries over there. And so I kind of almost pulled a Larry David where I was like, <laughs> it looks like you guys are okay. I'm just going to take these with me. <laughs> Did you have maple crumbs on your face when you offered them the box with one spot missing? But like, do you think it would have been funny if I had, I was like, here you guys go, here are the donuts, but you know, let me just grab one for the road. I thought you should approach them just like licking licking crueler dust off your finger. <laughs> no, but uh, that, that's that's basically all you've missed with me. Um, Andy, Did, well, apparently I didn't miss anything by not coming into the studio because there were no donuts. No, there weren't. So good for you for your labor support and opinions but i can't imagine what your coworkers did to you for not bringing the donuts they thought the anecdote was pretty pretty adorable i think it's pretty solid it's a, it, it's a it's a b plus cr anecdote I thanks love man thank you uh what do you want to talk about first star wars or star wars spider-man mandalorian <laughs> <laughs> exactly the seo people are like please talk about star wars 
Let's talk about Spider-Man for a second, because I got some questions. Far from home. Why did they take him far from home? This seems like, I'm just going to jump in, I'm going to jump in hot here. This seems like an opportunity for the Hollywood fixer, which as everyone knows, is a role Chris Ryan takes on uh, <laughs> on the mic when he holds his glasses Jonas Sarah style, just to skew off the side of his, off the front of his face. They could have been like, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man should be in the neighborhood. It just seems like a weird flex to be like, after 50 years of trying and 20 years of actually making Spider-Man movies, we kind of got it right with Homecoming. Mm-hmm. Let's just spice it up by taking him and putting him in Venice. I The only explanation I can come up with were Euro-Brexit-related tax credits or John Watt, the director, has always been modeling this franchise on the uh, National Lampoon Vacation <laughs> franchise. And thus, Europe was the only logical place to go next. I love the fact that your read on the success of Spider-Man is its deep roots in Queens. Not, not the fact that they just captured the character and that he is, in fact, a boy spider. But it's like, no, the fact that it's really no. a part of the, queen, the tapestry of Queens life. The whole point of this well, pre-Amazon HQ2, Queen's Life anyway. The whole point of the character, right, is the lower stakes of his life contrasting the higher stakes of his superhero life. And you're already, I got to be honest with you, you're already losing me because the construction of this trailer, uh, it appears to be them saying, well, we don't know if Downey's making any more Iron Man movies after this Avengers Endgame, so we're just making Spider-Man young Iron Man because Mm -hmm. we have... Favreau in it, and he has a hundred cool mechanized suits. It, it just, it, it seems like a lot. And it seems like a lot that's not necessary. And that's before we get uh, Jake Gyllenhaal cosplaying as Russell Crowe, <laughs> Gladiator era Joaquin Phoenix. I love it. I, I'm, I'm all in on it. I love the scenery. Like, let's go to Europe, man. I, I'm all good with fake New York. You could, t- you could take me to Europe. So, and, and I, w- I was going to ask you if you can tell me just like, what's the... What's the headline on Mysterio? What's his deal? Because I'm not familiar. You know, this longtime listeners may be surprised to hear me flat-footed, caught flat-footed on a nerdy <laughs> ass question like that. I think that he was something related to like special effects and he was just a bad guy who did smoke bombs and stuff. Like it's not the richest text to harvest from. So he's like Joe Bluth? He's like Joe Bluth. Yeah. He's 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 a little bit more like let, let let's take that dated reference and triple down on it. He's a little bit more like the actor Brian Brown from the film series FX. Uh-huh. Do you, do you remember, the, remember the classic Brian Brown? Of course, the yeah. Cocktail, Brian Dennehy buddy movies FX. I think he's more like that. Um, which, you know, means you can certainly update him. And judging from this trailer, like, I'm kind of into it. Here's, here's what I was hoping. What's the name of that new Gyllenhaal, um, t- uh, Dan Gilroy movie that the trailer dropped? Or it's about the LA art world. Oh yeah, like uh, Velvet, Velvet Buzzsaw. Yeah. So when he showed up in the trailer in London or Venice or whatever, because I couldn't tell what was going on, um, I thought maybe the the gag was going to be that Mysterio is the European superhero, and he was like, you know, stay in your lane, Spider Boy, and that he would have an outrageous accent, and I was super into it. Uh, but he doesn't even have an accent. So I don't know. Look, I, I'm here for the Tom Holland playing footsie with Zendaya stuff. I am all the way out on John Favreau playing footsie with Marissa Tomei. Stuff. <laughs> um, 
this this was a weird it's a weird trailer okay did, did you feel differently yeah i felt differently i, I really i'm i'm up for it I'm, i enjoyed it i thought it was it made a lot more sense to me as a movie than captain marvel does but we'll see i i'm sure we'll get more footage sometime soon speaking of new footage there was a really really like small teaser of a surprise i guess if you can call something that's happening in 2020 a surprise Ghostbuster sequel that Jason Reitman has been secretly working on uh, under the guidance of his father, Ivan Reitman, who directed uh, the original. And it's supposed to kind of be not a corrective, but taking place in the original timeline, I guess, of the first two Ghostbusters movies. It had kind of a little bit of a Stranger Things vibe in the teaser. I don't really want to ask you, does the world need more Ghostbusters movies? But did you have anything that you walked away from with this, like whether it was excitement or not? The world doesn't need more Ghostbusters movies, but the world needs more Ghostbusters takes on Twitter. So I'm really <laughs> glad about that. We've both been busy. I've been a little ill. So my, my grasp on current events might be slipping a little bit. But is there a lot of evidence of this kind of nepotism in big business working out? Like, are we sure we want film franchises to transfer between members of the family like Fortune 500 companies? Like, is this is this a good move? Uh, you know, which is, and I'm, I'm not even suggesting, we could talk about Jason Reitman's career as a film director, and it's very sweet and cute that, you know, he was in Ghostbusters 2 and he gets to make the new one, but it's a little weird, right? A little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that he's actually, he's had this like really fascinating career where he's like relentlessly tried to carve out a role that is increasingly non-existent in movies, which is making these sort of adult dramas, whether it's Tully or uh, Front Runner or Labor Day, or like just kind of like going at that, you know, Sidney Pollock zone that doesn't really exist anymore. And so this f- feels like him finally being like, all right, fuck it, I'll, I'll, I'll cash in, you know? So it's interesting to see that. And it's also fascinating to see it be like, so soon after the Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy Ghostbusters, yes. then being like, we're going we're gonna to go back and deliver the Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd goods. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it feels reactive, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that regardless of your opinions about that movie, the way that that movie was discussed, debated, received, and dissected makes this feel like, makes it feel a little bit grosser than it ought to. Um, because as you said, Jason Reitman is certainly not at least on the surface, has not been campaigning to be making movies like this. And his selection, based on his body of work, makes this kind of interesting. But it also, ultimately, and I'm actually curious what some of our younger listeners feel about this, I don't know if people love Ghostbusters that much. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's, yeah, it's like, I, I, and they haven't done enough maintenance to the brand over the years, the way even Indiana Jones does, you know? I mean, like, I think that there's some residual enthusiasm for that Mayu because of Stranger Things, because like the 80s kids on BMX bikes motif is such a big thing right now. So I think that there is probably some affection for it, but it's not even like something that I think is like classically regarded as like one of the great franchises, the way say Raiders or Jurassic Park has at various points over the last 30, 40 years. Right. And I think that for whatever people think about that, the Paul Feig directed movie, I don't think that it failed because, ew, gross girls or Ghostbusters. I think it kind of failed because no one understands why there's more Ghostbusters. Right. I think that's the argument that they didn't they didn't make. And if, if they had done the other version, the other more obvious reboot version that, you know, with 
Seth Rogen and James Franco and Aziz Ansari or whatever, I don't think it would have done well either. I, I just simply think that it's it's a, such a strange concept to begin with that worked primarily because of Bill Murray, Bill Murray's performance, and maybe Rick Moranis's performance. When Sigourney Weaver is really good too. Okay, it's pretty good, but it also speaks to. I don't want to use the words creative bankruptcy. I want to use the words um, desperation. I mean, look, all the studios are just trying to use their IP. Yeah. And this feels like a safer way to do it. So they're going to try to do it. You know, there's there's really not much more. It's not that complicated, I guess. We don't have you for long today. So I want to clear out ISO ball for Andy. Everybody knows how I feel about True Detective Season 3. You can watch The Flat Circle uh, on Sundays with me and Jason Concepcion or listen to the audio version of The Flat Circle, our True Detective After Show on the Recapables feed. I am very pro this season. Episode 3 comes Sunday. I'm very excited for it. But, you know, you are, even at the best of times, a true detective, true skeptic. So I'm very, very curious to know what you thought of these first two episodes. of the. I, I, have no, I haven't told you. I'm coming in blind. So people know, and I still get dragged for it that I did not like the first season of True Detective very much. I liked the second season probably less, but I was more interested in aspects of it. And mainly because of the Colin Farrell cocaine binge scene, which I'm still here for. (laughs) I thought that the season premiere of season three of True Detective was probably the best hour of True Detective that I have seen. I Jesus. Yeah. I thought it was the best version of this show. Okay. Now, coming into this, I want people to understand, like, I'm not coming for scalps. I don't think there's... Fundamentally, I think that Nick Pizzolatto's vision for drama is not mine. And I think that he is deeply passionate about things that I'm less interested in. And I think he is deeply uninterested in some things that I am curious about. Yes, like but what's interesting women. is that like 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 women and their thoughts. But, but but you're both interested in some of the same stuff. Yes, and well, so that's the whole second part of this. But yeah, with that, those caveats, I thought this might have been the best version of that because first of all, I thought it was beautifully directed by Jeremy Sonia. I just thought it was incredible looking. I thought Mahershala Ali is was fantastic and just cancel the makeup categories of the Emmys because his aging makeup is astounding. Yeah, the uh, old man um, Mahershala is incredible. And I, I just, I think Stephen Dorff is fucking fantastic. And I love thinking of him for that part, putting him in that part, the way he's playing the part. I, I love seeing John Tenney. You know, I just, it's very well cast around the margins, of course. Scoot is great. I just thought that of the things that now, you know, three seasons in, and I've also read his book, Galveston, like the things that motivate Nick Pizzolatto, his interest of the fleeting nature of time, you know, the way things come back again, um, a certain kind of masculine obsession and loss. Like this was obviously considered and designed and built in the wake of the failure of season two. And I don't think that's cynical to say that I think the consideration given to the things that he likes and how to portray them on screen, I think it was done successfully um, and comp- in a compelling way. Yeah. He's been pretty explicit about like, you know, the problems that he was facing personally during the making of season two and then season three being a place for him to like kind of go back to some of the things that he felt like worked about season one and gave, I mean, he was, it's not, it's almost nice because he was like, I understand that there are people who really love this show and I wanted to give them a show that they could love, essentially. 
I mean, there are things as we get into the second episode where there are cracks beginning to form that I almost was afraid that things that I was afraid of happening, like the whole uh, documentarian character. Yeah. The way she looks, the way she speaks, when she talks about her interest in intersectionality of gender and race. And I mean, there are those things, there are clunkers like that. But for every clunker, there's the scene with um, Wayne and what's his wife's name? Amelia. Amelia. Yeah. At the bar which I think is one of the best scenes that I've ever, that Pizzolatto has written in the shows that I've seen. It's a terrific flirtation scene under the guise of like, we're just saying our flaws here. And and like listing our resumes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really well done and well played. And, you know, some of that might be, again, we don't have any inside knowledge of this and we know, and I know Sonia left before he was meant to or scheduled to, for what, for what it's worth on the screen, they seem more in concert than Fukunaga did with his script on the first season, I think the second part of it is, and I, and I, I'll, I'll stop monologuing because I'm curious what you have to say about this. This is it. Cause it's something we often talk about, which is you were, you were more upfront about this. You're enti- I, I believe it's fair to say your favorite genre of literature is like post Vietnam. We got to sell this heroin stuff like sure. dog soldiers. Yeah. I mean, and <laughs> we dog soldiers by Robert stone books by James Crumley. I love reading these books and I, and I don't mind being in these worlds where, you know, there are like, these men who were broken from living in the jungle in Vietnam for two years and all of these things. The way you've described it makes me sound so simple. What's that? The way you describe it, it just makes me sound so simple for liking it. But you know what you know what you love. I do. And yeah. What I mean is yeah. when it's it's for whatever reason, when it's three-dimensional and on the screen, and we talked about this a lot in the first season of True Detective, it somehow becomes more problematic which is mm-hmm. a silly word to use but I'll we talked about like this I, during I, mindhunter we've talked about this a bunch where yeah. it's like the things that you can like sort of process when you're reading about them it becomes i think because there's all these choices being made in terms of what to titillate you with what to fetishize what to uh you know make seem heroic or cool that doesn't quite come across in books Absolutely. And, you know, you're constantly when you're in a, in a book with a POV character and particularly in the mind and in the hands of a writer, you're only seeing literally what they're showing you. And on, that's true, too, of course, with filmed entertainment. But sometimes on a when you're watching a TV show or a movie, you can't help but see the things happening in the background or the way the places the camera's not turning to or the people who aren't speaking and they're more present. Yeah. But again, not every show has to be has to reflect my vision for the world or my creative taste or whatever i there there is certainly a safe space for this super dude centric entertainment and I, I there's something that i found thought more thoughtful more meditative and frankly more interesting about these two episodes i enjoyed watching them even though they were long episodes and i am absolutely looking forward to watching more and I, I so almost, I want to hear your I don't want to like it, this is like a guy throwing a no hitter like I almost don't want to spook you by by talking about <laughs> it all. I think your point about the differences between season three and season one in terms of uh, the way in which Saulnier shows shoots Pizzolatto versus the way Fukunaga shoots it. I think there's also a degree to which the actors may have internalized the specific, for lack of a better word, poetry of Nick Pizzolatto. Where they they just seem to like Mahershala seems to understand rhythms of Pizzolatto's dialogue, and they're running it through him like he is he is like the entire offense, and at least for the first two episodes he is setting like the tone across 
both of those episodes. And I think it actually works, not necessarily like McConaughey is like a is like a comet. It's like an all-timer TV performance in that, but it is almost apart from the entire show itself. Like he goes on these like long monologues where it's just like clear out from McConaughey. Whereas Mahershal, I think, is really very much working in part of the fabric of this season of the show. So I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's worth pointing out. It's a good, it's a good observation. Um I'm very fascinated by the, uh, as you mentioned, the context around the 1980s and 1990s timelines that they have going on, and I'm really fascinated to see where it goes with some of the moral panic stuff. I think that it's a little slow getting out of the blocks, action-wise. Like there hasn't been much mm-hmm. movement. It's a lot of like just people in rooms, people in rooms, people in rooms. But I think over the years I've gotten kind of gotten used to that. Uh, but but I, I think that you know typically episode four of these shows tends to be the one that you're like. JFC, you know, um, that was, yeah, that was the stash point, house raid I, I in season one. I don't know if, and I can't tell yet if this case is worthy of all of the weight and mysticism and, you know, and, um, intrigue that, that, that is being placed on it. I can't tell yet. I'm deeply, deeply susceptible to child endangerment sure. stories or child, children in peril. It is awful. You know, the extra level of awful that I find hard to watch. But, you know, so I was drawn in almost against my will to the specifics of the case. But again, it it almost doesn't matter because I'm I am thrilled. Like I love the location. I love that they went to Arkansas to shoot it. You can tell. Whereas I feel like we're seeing places we haven't seen on screen. We're seeing places that feel legitimate and real. And even when the script or the the setup breaks that and doesn't feel real or feels forced everything else around it carries it, which was often the case in season one, but I feel like it's happening for me anyway, to my taste less now. There is definitely a conversation to be had. I am not the person to have the conversation, but Mahershala Ali's role in this moment, in this season, potentially carrying water for some sus stuff, you know, like the green book situation is fascinating. And, you know, there's this, the, the speech he gives about what's going to happen to the child abuser. If he goes back to prison in yes. two, yeah. uh, it, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't mean that. I don't know. And and similarly, like when I say this, I don't know how I would handle it differently, but it was interesting to read Joe Adalian's piece in Vulture about the making of season three, when how, you know, Wayne Purple Haze was created as a, a white character. And then they thought about Mahershala and they cast him and they made some adjustments. Well, Mahershala was like, you know, I, Mahershala Ali was like, I want to play Wayne. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. He, yeah. They offered him the other part. They right? offered him Roland and, and he said, if you want me, I want to play Wayne. Good for him and good. And it, the show is exceptionally, you know, exponentially better because of it and exponentially more interesting moments when he's with Amelia and when they first meet and there's that pause and he says, how is it for you here? You know, what the baggage I'm bringing to that scene, wondering about it. And, you know, I, I don't know. It didn't, it felt interesting to me, but it felt interesting in the way that it only bubbles up occasionally. Yeah. Again, this, this going down this road is almost defeating my praise of the show because I don't have answers. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I was definitely paying attention and I can't tell if I was paying attention because those moments bumped me from my enjoyment or I was paying attention to the meta narrative of who's, who gets to play what character and who's writing it. So I don't know, but my headline here is really, really honestly, pleasantly surprised. It's, it, it does just feel to me like the best version of, of what the show is in which a very, very strongly opinionated uh, and passionate writer gets to explore his the patch that he cares about in a very high budgeted very you know talent heavy 
meditative way. Yeah. And, and I don't, so far, I don't see the downside. I can't wait to see that on a poster somewhere. Really, really pleasantly <laughs> surprised. Um, Andy, thank you so much for calling in. We are going to be doing a show on Monday. So we will be in studio together. Uh, and we'll probably talk more a little bit about True Detective, but a, a bunch of other stuff. So I can't wait to see you then. Chris, do you think you would have been alert? <laughs> like, I don't know. I, 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 I enjoy you. human interaction too much. I don't think I would have gone on long range reconnaissance. I probably would have been more like Roland, motor pool. Yeah, I feel like though you would have like told people you were signing up for LERP duty. I was going to do LERP, but but I was too short. Yeah. <laughs> like young, young hothead CR would have been like LERP or nothing. LERP yeah, or bus. That's right. Lurper, I'm staying home. All right, man. Thank you so much. Talk to you Monday, guys. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the new Showtime original comedy series, Black Monday, from executive producers Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. It's 1986 Wall Street. Bad fashion, big hair, and bigger egos abound. The old boys club has all the power until an unruly group of underdog traders decide it's their turn to be on top and accidentally cause the biggest stock market crash in history. Starring Don Cheadle, Andrew Rannells, and Regina Hall, Black Monday premieres this Sunday at 10 p.m. only on Showtime. To try a free month of Showtime, go to Showtime.com and enter code THEWATCH. This offer is for first-time subscribers only and expires February 24th. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sci-Fi. Survival is extra credit in Sci-Fi's new series, Deadly Class, from executive producers the Russo Brothers. Based on the rich and brutal world within the graphic novel by Rick Remender and Wes Craig, Deadly Class is a coming-of-age journey full of ancient mystery and teen angst set against the backdrop of the unsanitized 1980s counterculture. Deadly Class follows the story of Marcus, a disillusioned teen living on the streets who was recruited into King's Dominion, an elite secret academy for the deadly arts where the world's top crime families send their next generations. Maintaining his moral code while surviving a ruthless curriculum, vicious social cliques, and his own adolescent uncertainties soon proves to be vital. While there, Marcus finds meaning and family in an unlikely group of outcast misfits who plan to use their skills to change the world for the better by breaking every rule there is. Catch all new episodes of Deadly Class Wednesdays at 10, 9 central on Sci-Fi. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Comedy Central's The Other Two. From head writers of SNL, Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, The Other Two stars Drew Tarver, Helena York, Case Walker, and features Molly Shannon, Ken Marino, and Wanda Sykes. The show follows Carrie and Brooke Dubeck, two 20-somethings struggling to make it in New York. As the two work toward finding themselves, their lives are completely upended when their 13-year-old brother Chase Dreams becomes incredibly famous overnight. Carrie, the older brother, is an actor who can't land better auditions than Man at Party Who Smells Fart. Brooke, the older sister, hasn't done anything since graduating from dance school 11 years ago. But now their little brother is a superstar and they are down to ride his wave, at least until they can figure out what they're doing with their own lives. The other two, Thursdays, beginning January 24th at 10.30, 9.30 Central after the season premiere of Broad City on Comedy Central. And now I am joined by like probably my favorite podcast Aww. partner. And he's pretty good. He's cool. He's consistent. But Juliet, you're my favorite. Hey. And Juliet's here to talk about this movie that's coming out in a couple weeks on Netflix, directed by Steven Soderbergh and written by Terrell McCraney. Mm-hmm. It's called High Flying Bird. 
And you wouldn't know this unless you knew me and Juliet, but she, I have a saying, which is that the arc of pop culture bends towards lip. Yes, it does. Thank you for recognizing it. <laughs> it seems like in the last 18 months, two years, maybe. Yes. It's like as a payoff for Trump, you get a lot of content. A lot, just like up my alley. Directly engineered for you. It's my year, 2019. So let's talk about some of that stuff and let's talk about High Flying Bird. 2019 is my year because we got the movie adaptation of Where'd You Go, Bernadette mm -hmm. by Richard Linklater, book by Maria Semple. Movie adaptation of The Goldfinch film. That's right. Film by I Don't Know Who, I Don't Care, written by Donna Tartt, yeah. starring both Sarah Paulson and Nicole Kidman. Is Ansel Elgort in that? And Ansel Elgort, yeah. yes. <laughs> it's going to be it's gonna be something, good or bad. I'm, I'm fired up. The Hills is coming back on MTV. Yeah. That's huge. And Vampire Weekend's releasing new music. Oh, like my favorite band. I just found that out a few hours ago, so I'm fired up. But I think that the, are that the origin of this of this phenomenon may have started the day that I sent you the link that was the like, deadline.com. Steven link. Soderbergh is directing a movie about a, a up and coming basketball agent who like basically tries to upend the NBA. And it stars Andre Holland. From my favorite departed TV show, The Nick. Yes. Which I I, I truly, I tweeted this. Juliet loves I, The Nick. I miss it every day. She loves basketball. And even more than that, she loves the machinations yes. of basketball and like the underworld of basketball. Yes. The movie had its trailer come out today on Thursday. It just looks dope. It just looks like, I know that so Soderbergh's been taking some like interesting experimental swings over the last couple of years. He did Unseen. Didn't uh, see it. There's a Claire Foy thriller horror movie that he did on an iPhone. I think he shot this on an iPhone. He did. He also made the kind of a choose your own, it wasn't a choose your own adventure, but it was the show for HBO called Mosaic, which starts Sharon Stone and was also a game you could play on an app. But I didn't, I just watched the show on HBO. This cast is just heat rock after heat rock. Serve it up. So we got Andre Holland playing Dean, the agent mm -hmm. who's like trying to upend the NBA. I love Andre Holland. I don't know why he's not more famous. I thought, I mean, this is great. He's in Moonlight. Did you see Castle great. Rock? No. Was yeah. it good? It's good. All right. I'll watch that. Sure. I'm it's really fine. excited about it, him. Yeah. Zazie Beats mm -hmm. from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. which is great. Zachary Quinto, back on the scene. <laughs> I, I think this is a heat check for him. Quinto's back. I uh, I recently rewatched Margin Call. Oh, great movie, He's actually. He's quite good in that. Yeah. It's a very good movie. I think that will age well. I think that'll become... That could be a rewatchable. I think that will become like a record of the era of like recovering from the crash and, yeah. like, and sort of like reckoning with the banks. Do you prefer that to Big Short? I love them both. I mean, the, the music of the big short like really makes it for me. Yeah. When they drop in the ludicrous and Pharrell and I just like love it. It's a very nostalgic movie like um, for a time of like national despair. Sure. It's weird. But those are both really good movies. Um, also in this movie, Kyle MacLachlan. I mm -hmm. just feel like every... As an NBA owner, I think. Yes, yeah. as an owner. He's kind of like a bus. He's like, this is family business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like a bus type of guy as in the Lakers owners. And I mean, like, do I need to add more? That's four huge names. That's like, for, that's like watch heads should be super excited. Yeah, and I'm just so excited to see like him working in this uh this kind of like a slightly more palatable mainstream vein and this seems like a really really cool like drama set in the world that you want to spend a lot of time with. Steve, let's go back towards the center. Let's yeah. let's make popular fair. I mean, iPhone this is fine, but like let's let's do stuff that people like you and me are going to love. So the thing is is that he has I'm I'm calling up his filmography now and that you know, he has these runs in movies where the best of the best, let's just go over them really quickly. Okay. And I'm just going to, it's, it's, it's quite out, a of, run. out of sight in 98. Oof. Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, the Three Oceans movies, Contagion, 
Magic Mike, Side Effects, Logan Lucky, and Unseen. That's like pretty much like the selected filmography over the last couple of years. Incredible. Just in incredible. What a 20-year run. I mean, and the Nick. Yeah. It's just amazing. Behind the Candelabras in there. Yeah, the informant. I mean, there's tons of like little stuff in there that's yeah. really good. He's probably my favorite director, Living. Yeah. He's really good. I mean, I love the Oceans movies. Love Out of Sight, obviously. He just harnesses my favorite talents in a great way. And I also think that over the last few years... There's been all these this anticipation about the stuff that he's a, he's about to release, and then because of the way he's making these movies, like on iPhone or like experimentally edited or whatever, there's maybe a little bit of disappointment in them when they first come out. But like, I think Logan Lucky is actually pretty good. I liked Logan Lucky. Yeah, but like in the theater, you might be like, oh, okay, cool. Like it's not quite as charming as Ocean's Eleven. Sure, but they all wind up being pretty interesting. And then this is another this year. It sounds like he's going to do something that he hasn't done since uh, since 2000, I don't think, when he did Aaron Brockovich in Traffic, famously, is he's doing High Flying Bird, and then he's got The the Laundromat, which is a movie about the Panama Papers coming out later in the year. With Meryl Streep. Heavy hitters. Gary Oldman. <laughs> wow. David Schwimmer. Yeah. Schwimmer's having a weird, a weird run right now. Schwimmer's Even though he wasn't in Homecoming, I, he established that role. Yes, he's back. And then Cannavale came and took his spot. <laughs> Big time. I like that Alex Pettifer is in the laundromat. This Soderbergh is, is so loyal. It's wild. <laughs> because he's in Magic Mike and then we haven't heard from him since basically. Had to go back to Australia or wherever he's from. When I think of uh, the Panama Papers, I think of Alex Pettifer. We all do, obviously. Obviously. Um, I, I'm really excited about this movie. What do you think about it being on Netflix? I'm, I'm happy about it. I'm fine with it. I just, it, I'm excited that I don't have to wait that much longer yeah, for it. Yeah, that's the cool thing. And you can watch it multiple times. And you, if you really love it, which I, you, you, there's a really high chance that you do. Yes. Like, I just think it's something that you can just like, be like, I'm just going to have high flying bird on for like again. three weeks. Yeah. yeah, totally. Can we segue into what he saw and read and listened to in 2018? So one of the reasons why it's so easy to love Soderbergh is he's such a good citizen of pop culture. He's like a really good sharer, a really good curator. And every year it's at the end of the year, it's aspirational, really. He has this website called extension765.com. That- buy some like, you can buy his like weird South American liqueur there. But oh. you can also read his huge list of everything that he read, watched, read and watched over the course of the year. And it's broken up by a day. So sometimes you can find these like incredible days. Like for instance... He watches, like, Swept Away, read The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner, and then watched five episodes of Below Deck. (laughs) Uh, His Below Deck run is amazing. So So can you tell... I don't know anything about Below Deck. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if he watched Below Deck Med, if he watched Real Below Deck. I don't don't know. But Below Deck has been on for a while now. I think about six years. Has a few spinoffs. It's about the crew of a yacht Uh and the various charters they go on. So each episode is a different charter trip. It's like these this woman and her four gal friends from Oklahoma just want to go out on the (laughs) yacht for a few days. There's (laughs) Captain Lee is the captain. There's been a couple, and the staff has changed over time. It's a great show. But is it like transcendent, or is it just like a really good reality? It's just a good reality. It's it's like mid mid tier. Bravo yeah. right now. Like so, it's not even in the Southern Charm Vanderpump Rules Real Housewives tier. Like okay. it's it's second it's second it's a second class citizen of the Bravo Liberty world. Which maybe explains why he can watch five on like, May 25th, he watched five. <laughs> on June 1st, he watched five. On June 3rd, he watched four. 
There were 20 days in which she watched Below Deck in this year. He devoted a, a four weeks to Below Deck, basically. What were some of your other favorite days that you had here? Um, he had a run where he was obviously gearing up to read My Year of Re- Rest and Relaxation, uh-huh. which I loved, like absolutely love and really recommend by Otessa Moshbeg. And um, that, he read that on July 14th. And on July 12th, he read his, her book of her first book, which got her a lot of... Eileen. Um, Eileen, which yeah. got her a lot of attention. I'm just really into his May and July. He hit a lot of things that I'm interested in. He had Zadie Smith on July 19th. I like that he devoted a full day to his Zadie Smith short story. So the the thought here is that he is finishing these books that day. I've always wondered. This is, is that- very complicated for me because as somebody with a lot of like book anxiety and also sure. s- book starting but not finishing anxiety, I want, I like, I'm always just like, so did you just knock out War and Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American no. Influence by Ronan Farrow on on August 4th, or had you been reading it? He been reading it. It can't be that he's reading all of those on the same day. He probably just reads, like, finishes them, like you said, or start, maybe he starts all of them on that day. Oh, man, if I could start a list for books that I start, it oh, would just yeah. be out of control. Right now, I'm trying really hard to get through um, a Salman Rushdie book, and, mm-hmm. like, I keep getting distracted by other ones that I want to read. It's called The Golden House. I'm going to finish it, but, like, I just got distracted by a Sally Rooney book. It's very, I was just, there's a lot. I also, one thing underrated from this Soderbergh what he read and, and saw in 2018, he went back to absolutely fabulous. He was watching AbFab in September. You can't tell him anything about that. He's always he's always stuck by AbFab. He's re- he really had quite a Kushner year too. He yes. really got into the we got the flame flamethrowers. I think he got. I don't know if he talks from Cuba in this year, but yeah, it's just so great. So he also read Crazy Rich Asians in the, in the spring and saw the movie. <laughs> In the fall, which I really respect. He's a completist. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of people who are like so deep into pop culture love him because his work reflects like that kind of completist nature. And also he's just like obviously so smart. He's that's like exactly a literary guy. Because it's like he he has a degree of hipness where he's like aware that Crazy Rich Asians is a thing. He's aware about like these little cultural phenomenons, but he still obviously has his personal interests. I'm also fascinated by like what here might have been dictated by his own personal interests or if it's like a family thing. Right. So like this run, like his dedication to figure skating and the Winter Olympics. Amazing. Is like, is that a family thing? Or is that just like, I love the Winter Olympics? There's just some people in this world who view the Olympics like this pure event with so much sanctity. And I feel like he's one of those people. Well, we did for the Summer Olympics in 2012. 2012 Summer Olympics is probably the peak of my time as an internet denizen. I don't I don't think it'll get better. Yeah. The um, content was so pure and so fun back then. I also like looking for the other connections is really fun. Like on, on November 27th, he's finally saw a star is born, the 2018 version. <laughs> and then <laughs> he also watched on December 16th, a few weeks later, he watched Gaga, Five Foot Two on Netflix. Yeah. So he's really like putting in the work just like you and me. He could be a blogger. He could be. I, my favorite thing about him is that every year, no matter which, which year, it, you can guarantee that he will watch Jaws and Social Network multiple times. Do you think he just lives a life where he's immensely jealous of those two movies or it's so much reverence? That's a great question. I think it's reverence. brings him down. I think it's reverence. I don't believe that. I think there's probably a lot of envy You think he sits there watching Jaws and Social Network and is like, why can't I do that? Jaws, no. It's not, it's better, Jaws is different because he was not like in his director years yet. But you think Social Network Social Network probably really gets to him. It's like, (laughs) I I could, why not me? Mark! Mark! It's not like you work at Facebook. It's not, like, it's not like you work at Facebook. You don't work at Facebook. I mean, it's one of, I think it's just like a universally beloved movie. Obviously, are rewatchable. It's already been recorded. Check out that episode. It's from like the first year. Yeah. I mean, 
I just bet he's got so much Fincher envy. And like Soderbergh's but obviously- But they're like peers. They like, they like show each other cuts and stuff like that. You know, eh. not buying it. I think there's probably like a lot of competition there. Fincher seems really competitive to me too. This is great. Because psychological profiles of some of our great directors. Also, there's no question that Soderbergh is better than Fincher except for The Social Network. Don't agree. You don't? What's I your do favorite not. Fincher movie other than The Social Network? Like all of them. Like, what do you mean? Do which Finch Zodiac's like the best movie of the last thirty? I forgot years. you ride really hard for Zodiac. Do you not like that movie? I like it. I just don't. I, I just Soderbergh style. Mindhunter is better than any. I think. I think. Well, okay. Mindhunter right now is neck and neck with the first seasons of the Nick and Mindhunter are neck and neck. Mm-hmm. I will be very interested to see what happens in the second season. And I thought the second season of Nick kind of dropped off a little bit. Interesting. I like David Fincher, obviously, but um, just nothing compares to Soderbergh for me. He's my guy. Okay. Well, will you come back on and talk about High Flying Bird when it finally comes out? Yeah, of course. I can't wait. Awesome. All right. That was Juliet Littman. Uh, We'll be back on Monday with Greenwald. Have a great weekend, Baranskis. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sci-Fi from executive producers the Russo Brothers. Survival is extra credit in Sci-Fi's new series, Deadly Class. Set in the unsanitized counterculture of the 1980s, a disillusioned teen is recruited into King's Dominion, a secret academy for the deadly arts. There he finds meaning and family in a group of outcast misfits who are out to change the world based on the best-selling graphic novel by Rick Remender and Wes Craig. Deadly Class is a coming-of-age journey full of ancient mystery and teen angst Catch all new episodes of Deadly Class Wednesdays at 10, 9 central on Sci-Fi.